Hey, Mark, I have a little experiment I'd like to try. I like nachos. Sorry, what are we talking about? I like experiments. Uh, what do you have in mind? I'm going to say a sentence, and you tell me if it's true or false. Okay, got it. Here's the first one. Scotland is part of the UK. That is true. How about the sun is made of baryonic matter? Also true. Two plus two equals five. Now that one's false. You're pretty good at this. Yeah, I could do this all day. How about this one? The present king of France is bald. Mm, false. Oh, really? Who's the king of France? Well, France is a unitary semi-presidential republic. It doesn't have a king. Well, if there's no king of France, how do you know if he's bald or not? Uh, okay, okay. I'm changing my answer to maybe we'll find out on today's show. Hey everyone, welcome to You've Got It All Wrong, a philosophy podcast for handsome people like you. I'm Chad Allen. I'm Paco Allen. And I'm America's sweetheart, Mark Sanders. So the bit that we just heard from Mark and Paco uh, is about the meaning of names and how names and proper nouns work. So if you think about the present king of France or the king of France as a proper noun, this paradox that they've outlined or this question they've asked of us um, is about uh, how to identify the king of France or what the king of France means. And this seems like maybe a trivial question, but it's actually an important and complicated one. So a lot of analytic philosophy or 20th century Anglo-American philosophy is about determining the truth value of sentences. So just like a, a quick example of that, take the this argument that we've discussed before on the show, which just follows the lines of all men are mortal Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. That's a uh, deduction in logic, but in order for us to figure out if it's actually true, we would have to know whether or not Socrates is a man. And in order for us to figure that out, we'd have to know what the name Socrates refers to. And that feels like sort of an obvious and trivial thing because we use names every day and we seem to get along just fine with our everyday concept of how names work. But like a lot of things, um, especially a lot of topics in philosophy, um, when we start to sort of try to unpack our intuitions about how names work, it gets complicated. And Right. I mean, we, we almost spend more time defining what the word man means or the word mortal means than we do defining what names mean or what Socrates means. Like we just through pure intuition, we kind of use names all the time in everyday life. So we kind of just have this intuition of how they work and what they mean. And we spend a lot of time maybe defining what man means and what mortal means, but not right. what Socrates means because we, we think we know what it means. Yeah, that's a great 
way to put it because we do sort of like take it for granted that we know how names work. But there's, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around this topic, um, especially sort of, um, you know, kind of goes, well, like most things in philosophy, this conversation goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks. Um, But it, it sort of became more prominent in contemporary philosophy um, sort of starting with John Stuart Mill uh, in in the 1800s. Yeah, it was back then, um, as you may remember from uh, episode 10, um, the uh, Superman paradox episode that we uh, we witnessed the the great. Uh, I like to think of it as a a rumble in the jungle, uh, an all star smackdown between uh, uh, John Stuart Mill and his uh, his wrestling name of Millionism. <laughs> and uh, Gottlieb Frege, or the Freganator. Um, there was a. It was quite a. Uh, quite... Do these wrestlers have any famous moves? <laughs> if I'd actually followed through on this uh, this analogy with with more than the the this fifteen seconds I had before right. I started speaking, I probably could have thought of some. But um... well, I think maybe the Frege flop, you know, which you could think of as maybe like a high rope maneuver, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, from a turnbuckle. Maybe yeah. the JSM uh, uh, pile driver. Because he really drives home what a name is. Because it only is the thing you're talking about. It is the reference. Okay. That's a reach. But I was thinking more like a sort of like mill grinder thing, you know? Ooh, like a, yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Which is maybe like kind of a headlock. Right. And, but And like a professional level <laughs> noogie where he's yeah. like grinding That's a fist exactly into the top of their head. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, now that we've got this fictional wrestling match aside, yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, uh, Never what mind the fact that these guys weren't alive at the same time. But yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, well, uh, 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 John Stuart Mill uh, uh, had the uh, he, he retained the uh, the title. He had the belt. Uh, most philosophers subscribe to to millionism, um, which is based on the fact that uh, the entire meaning of a name is its referent, the thing it's pointing to. Um, it's often referred to as the uh, the the Fido theory. Um, because what are you f- going to do when John Stuart Mill and all the little millionisms run wild on you? Uh, no one's going to pick up that Hulk Hogan reference. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> no one. Yeah, I think there's one person, and his name was Chad. So if you want to point in that, <laughs> general what are you going to do with Hulk Hogan and all the Hulk maniacs run wild on you? All right, continue. Wait, tell us. <laughs> No, I mean, well, that was like his catchphrase that oh. he would like yell at people in the from with a microphone in the center of the ring. Yeah, I Basically thought you say, were like, looking for like a call and response situation there. No, I was just looking for some kind of recognition that anybody <laughs> else watched wrestling in the eighties. <laughs> um, you know, you know, our listeners can't actually respond to you in real time, Paco. No, I was talking about the two of you. <laughs> I will. Uh, I will make sure I study uh, uh, more name theory and uh, eighties wrestling before the next episode. Okay. Anyways. Uh, Anyway, so uh, a millionism, the idea that a, a name is a thing it references. Um, I mentioned uh, Fido, as in uh, your, your pet dog, Fido. Uh, the Fido theory, uh, because the name Fido has no meaning above and beyond the fact that it refers to a particular dog. Um, but it was uh, it was uh, uh, Gottlob Frege. Frege. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how that's pronounced. I should probably have uh, uh, checked. Um, <laughs> I always I always think of Gottlob as uh, uh, pentalobe as well. You know those those funky screwdrivers for tamper-proof screws. Yeah. Um, so, you know his fancy, his smart, his unique. Uh, you you know when in a pinch, you know you can't do with any other solution. 
um, in his <laughs> <Got> uh, frigge. <laughs> <laughs> but so just before we get into frigge, like millionism is basically the idea that all of the meaning of a name is contained in the thing that the name is pointing to, right? Like the name is just a sign that points to a thing. In technical terms, it's called a referent, but all the meaning is contained in that thing that the name is just like a sign that points to it, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I made the reference in an earlier episode um, to in, in programming how you might have a, um, a variable that is really just pointing to a, a memory space right. um, on the system. Or you really might up. say like Howie Mandel is the name, but it points to the thing that was the host of Deal or No Deal or America's Got Talent or Bobby's World or was the voice of Gizmo in Gremlins. <laughs> oh, nice, nice, nice callback. Really? I did not remember that. No, I didn't know that either until I watched Gremlins this weekend and saw the credits as Howie Mandel for the voice of Gizmo. Wow. Did, the, did Chad buy you that copy of Gremlins? <laughs> he, he did not. I bought it all on my own. I couldn't wait. You couldn't wait for the like check to show up in the mail? <laughs> no, I, I couldn't. I couldn't. So that's, uh, that's millionism, right? Where the meaning... Yeah of a thing is contained in the thing and the name just points at the thing but all yeah. the meaning the meaning of howie mandel is in the actual like physical like thing that is physical howie mandel and yeah. Yeah. was uh, the host of deal or no deal and did the voice of gizmo for gremlins and howie mandel is just a thing that points at it yeah yep. and i think your examples there we're going to get onto later uh, under the descriptivism um label um but but Frege had an uh, alternate view um uh, going back to our uh, episode 10, um, when we uh, looked at how uh, Clark Kent and Superman both point to the same physical object, both of those names, they uh, said to have the same referent, but they have different meanings. Uh, you know, For example, Superman can't fly and can fly and Clark Kent can't. Uh, we have this, this immediate um, um, uh, problem. We have this breakdown of the, the naming system if we want to have the more classical Melianism approach. But Frege, uh, you know, really appeals to our, our, our common sense. You know, we understand that those two things are different. Um, in his uh, book, uh, Sense and Reference, which was published in 1892 uh, for the for the keen, eagle-eyed listeners, also the same year that Arthur Conan Doyle published the first work of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, Co- coincidence? Uh, yeah, probably a coincidence. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Frege uh, appealed to uh, our common sense with uh, his more technical uh, 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 mechanism that he also called sense. The idea that names ha- also have a sense. Uh, while the name Superman, Superman has the referent as the name Clark Kent and the name Superman also has a, a part of its meaning in a, a sense or description of someone who can fly. Those can be two independent ideas because they have a di- different sense or in the German sin. Um, so that's a very clear way to add another layer of uh, um, a functionality onto the use of, of names to make them more more usable. Yeah, so like the problem with, with millionism is that it had no way to deal with the fact that Superman and Clark Kent had the same referent but had nonetheless different meanings for us. And so, um, you know, Frege's innovation, so to speak, is to layer on this notion of sense and say, yes, they can both have the same referent, but they have different sense. And so that's how we can make sense of the fact that um, we have a different perception of who Clark Kent is um, from our perception of who Superman is. And that was right up to, um, that was the way we handled it right up to uh, the beginning of the 20th century, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that basically kind of like 
recaps most of what we covered in episode 10 and kind of gets us up to speed on the discussion around the meaning of names through the early 1900s. Um, and then I guess maybe like back to the wrestling analogy, then enters Bertrand Russell, uh, who might in this version be the rock. I don't know. Like yeah, the new know. man on the scene who shows up and throws the whole world of the WWF, uh, on its head. Maybe triple H. No, I mean, triple H is definitely riding on the coattails of the giant tsunami that the rock created in, in the world of wrestling. So, Anyways, that's the, that's the only wrestler I knew. Uh, Bertrand Russell enters the scene and along with uh, Frege and along with his protege, Ludwig Wittgenstein, those three are kind of considered like the key founders of analytical philosophy. And Bertrand Russell, right, this is a guy who knows the impact of a good pipe on the quality of a portrait. <laughs> Everybody right now needs to pause the show, punch in Bertrand Russell into Google image search. Like 90% of his photos and his portraits have pipes. Multiple angles, multiple pipes, multiple ways to throw it down. None of the portraits without a pipe are better than the portraits with a pipe. Isn't that true of all portraits? I was going to say, as a result, uh, he was famous among his friends, colleagues, and uh, acquaintances for having possibly the worst breath of any human alive in that period. <laughs> what? <laughs> he had the worst halitosis. He was sometimes in some circles more famous for that than any of his other achievements. I don't think the pipe's got anything to do with that. If anything, the pipe's going to help cover that up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the thing that we're going to focus on um, with Bertrand Russell um, is his approach to uh, the idea of names and what names mean, which m most of that work is found in his 1905 book, on denoting, uh, but he essentially came to the same conclusion that Frege did about Milanism, which is that it was wrong and that there was something else to the meaning of something other than the thing itself, that the name actually contained some amount of meaning. Uh, and he built on, on Frege's idea of sense and eventually kind of got to a point where he basically said that, that it was kind of all in the sense that the idea of a name was what he called a disguised definite descriptions, which is kind of a shorthand for a name is a collection of descriptions for a thing that all of the descriptions or ideas that we have about a thing are kind of packaged up in a name and that that's where all the meaning is. It's almost like he's going back to the platonic ideal. Yeah, in some ways. And I mean, if you go back to like the Howie Mandel uh, example, uh, you know, Frege would have said that, um, you know, part of the meaning of Howie Mandel is the physical thing um, out there in the world, the referent. Um, and he would have also said that part of the meaning of Howie Mandel is um, the voice of uh, which of uh, what's in Gremlins? Gizmo. Gizmo. Jeez, how did I forget that? Uh, the the voice of Gizmo and I don't know, name Howie Mandel's other uh Bobby's voice world, again, the voice yeah. of Bobby in Bobby's world. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so so Russell might say something like, um, you know, the meaning of the name uh, Harry Mandel is um, the guy who played Gizmo and the and the guy uh, who was on Bobby's world, and that is just this like sum of um, you know different descriptions that 
contain or make up the meaning of Howie Mandel. And um, Russell's sort of well-known example is to say that like the meaning of the name Aristotle is the student of Plato and the teacher of Alexander the Great. Um, and you can kind of list off all the other, um, you know, things that Aristotle is known for. Um, and, and all of those things add up to the meaning of the name Aristotle. Um, and that, I think that's it, though. I think he was just known as the student of Plato right. and the teacher that's of Alexander all, the That's Great. all we know him for, yeah. He's kind of like a footnote in history. And yeah. Outside of those two things, I don't know that much <laughs> is known about him. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of Russell's program here was to belittle Aristotle and reduce all of his achievements <laughs> to being the, to just those two things. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's basically like a student of somebody who's really famous, like a really smart guy, and he also taught <laughs> one of the most horrible right. military leaders of all time, like right. one of the most horrible decimators of civilization ever. One like, of the most successful in that regard. Yeah, well, I mean, depends on what side you're standing on. Tony Robbins loves him. Oh, really? Yeah. He's very successful in his world. Very productive, very effective. <laughs> Uh, so I think that, um, you know, that this is where this sort of interesting, um, uh, where, where Russell starts to depart from Frege in an interesting way, because again, like, uh, unlike Frege, R Russell thinks that the, the referent is not part of the meaning of the name. Um, and that the whole meaning of the name is bound up in this, um, cluster, uh, or family of descriptions. And so this is how he wants to solve this conundrum that we talked about at the top of the show about the present king of France is bald and whether that statement is true or not. Because for Frege, or for Mill, for that matter, that statement essentially is meaningless because there is no present king of France, and so the sentence has no referent. The name has no meaning or content because the meaning of the name is just its referent. And so without a referent, the sentence that contains that name um, or proper noun, in this case, the king of France, that sentence just becomes meaningless. Uh, Russell shared Mark's intuition that the sentence did have a truth value and that the sentence is false. And so he... So Russell's way of kind of supporting that intuition or making our theory of names align with that intuition is to is to is to fall back to this position of saying, you know what, um, the meaning of a name isn't um, is not um, tied to its referent. The meaning of the name is just this cluster cluster of descriptions, and so in if that's the case, then this the sentence the present king of France is bald makes a couple of assertions. First of all, it asserts that there is a king of France, and then it asserts that the king of France is bald. And Russell says that... Um, but I think sentence, it, it, it makes one more assertion. Like, he makes three assertions. He, he basically says that sentence is three sentences or three ideas. Uh, that there is a king of France, and the fact that it's the king of France means that there's only one of those things, because it's the... King Fair of France. Enough. Yeah. Right. And that the present King of France is also bald. Like this guy wrote two chapters on the meaning of the in a book. So <laughs> he feels like the is a very important word in that sentence. Yeah, that's a fair point. 
Yeah, I find it interesting in um, in computers, um, computer programming. Com- uh, looking back at my uh, my past as a developer, there's a there's a, a variable type called uh, a boolean, which can have the state of true, or uh, this variable can have the state of false, or it can have a third state, which is null, which is neither true nor false, uh, which is a, a very convenient artifice in this situation. Yeah, and I mean, and so in that sense, um, you know, Russell would say that uh, under Frege's interpretation, we would we would have to say that the sentence "the present king of France is bald" has the value of null. Um, so he, he said that the sentence "the king of France" makes three assertions: there is a king of France, there is only one king of France, and that the king of France is bald. And because that first assertion that there is a king of France is false, there that means that the entire sentence or the assertion that the present king of France is bald is false. And and he's able to do that by saying that th- that this name or this proper noun, the king of France, th- th- there's no part of the meaning of that name that is that that is um determined by its referent um there is a thing in the world that will determine the the truth value of that sentence assuming that thing exists and and what russell is saying is that in cases where that thing doesn't exist it's going to mean that the truth value of the sentence is false so that's how we get to russell's answer about uh how we can say that the sentence the present king of france is bald is false and now what we have to do as responsible podcasters uh, is vote on whether we think the sentence, the king of France is bald, is true, false, or meaningless. Those are, those are the three. Well, we have a third choice. Yeah. Meaningless? Well, because if you're Frege, the sentence is, oh, right, is meaningless. Right. Yeah, okay, I get it. Yeah, no, I got it. I got it. I got it. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to say that the present king of France is bald is true. So really, your choices are kind of like false or meaningless. But theoretically, you could say true. I vote true. <laughs> yeah, present as in there's an actual king of France somewhere in some state of decomposition who is probably pretty bald. And if the last <laughs> one is still the current one. Yeah, I vote true. No, but that's not the, but, but, true. The, but the present king of France is not bald. Don't forget, guys. Well, the, Okay. What you think? He's a king. He's a king of France. He's bald, and he exists in the present time, just decomposing. Do I have to like Mm -hmm. rephrase the sentence in an even more technical fashion? Not including Louis Sixteenth. I mean, let's get into the unicorn versions of this (laughs) thought experiment. Okay, I am going to vote meaningless. Okay, Mark, are you sticking to your part in the thought experiment? Uh, no, or the dialogue. I, or you, I, I, I'm holding up my uh, podcast issued voting um, uh, paddle, which has the word meaningless written on it, which I'm showing the audience right now. <laughs> uh, you can get an autographed copy of that for 19.95 plus shipping. Uh, stop! Stop promising physical <laughs> items for real Although world money I, on the show. I'm just trying to. Well, I. I think it's an okay thing for us to have merch. I'm just trying to now. I'm just trying to put the price point 
high enough that yeah. you know we can I, actually support it. We can actually get some uh, foam core and a and a sharpie for less than nineteen ninety five. Yeah, and put it in the mail for nineteen ninety five. I said plus shipping. I mean, yeah. Yeah. we're gonna make a killing on these things, guys. Um, I feel like I feel like you're delaying your answer. What's your? Oh vote? no, my my answer is that the sentence is false. Um, I think that false. Yeah, the sentence is false. The present king of France is not bald. He he has a full head of hair. <laughs> no, it it no. The the sentence is false because there is no present king of France, and so the sentence implicitly makes an assertion that there is a present king of France, and there isn't. And so it's not true that the present king of France is bald. So like order- from, a pro- pro- from a programming point of view, the the um, the expression fails before you get before you need to finish it. Um, I guess that depends on <laughs> the structure of your program. I mean, I think that in one scenario, the program would spit out false before it even got to considering whether or not the so-called present king of France was bald. Right, because it would start with evaluating the truth condition of is there a present king of France or not, and it would spit out false, and that's effectively what I'm saying is that I think the yeah. sentence is false. No, so I, yeah, I agree. Like I, I, I think I, I misstated my position. I agree. Like, wait, what? Yeah, no, I. Like, <laughs> you're, you're switching. Yeah, okay. It's not meaningless. It's false. Okay, I'd say the person asking it is meaningless. <laughs> uh. I've seen okay. you insulted my brother, and I challenge you to a duel at <laughs> Not dawn prepared to die. With pistols. Uh, I thought we were going to go for a wrestling match. <laughs> no, well, then definitely that would be more on theme, I guess. <laughs> okay, um, I guess we have our votes. So that's two false versus one meaningless. Yes. All right. To the mid show break. Um, just to continue the the theme of names, I've got uh, some interesting names for you guys. Um, things named after other things um, in the in the realm of, in the realm of science. Okay. Um, there was a a beetle that was recently discovered um, with a, a very well developed middle femora, which resembled a, a bulging bicep, and it was is this named... Ringo. <laughs> no, this is a uh, this is a, a garden variety beetle. Oh, um, okay. And the uh, the Latin name it was given was Agra, sorry, Agra Sch- Schwarzeneggeri, after Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> no, no, that's not true. See show notes for science. Uh, Chad, do you, do you have anything uh, uh, namey that uh, you'd like to add into the mix? If you mean, would I like to talk about someone by the name Bertrand Russell, then yeah, I thought, you know, I might actually contribute something that has to do with the topic that we are discussing. It's a it's a novel idea, I know. But I think Bertrand Russell is a really interesting guy. So I just wanted to... And we're not just going to talk about his name? Yeah. It's kind of a boring name. <laughs> uh, really? I think Bertrand is a, is a great name. 
Well, now, but back in the day, maybe not so much. Mark, can you say with an Australian accent? Uh, I can say with a, a more European accent. Uh, you can say Bertrand. By <laughs> <laughs> European, do you mean French? Or yes. like, that's yeah. Well, you you could also say that would be a German accent as well, but I'm not sure if I could really pull it off. No, but... no, you couldn't. Uh, no, you. What do you mean you couldn't say that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, look, uh, I want to talk about Bertrand Russell for a minute, not just his name, but the man himself. So, uh, what's the difference between those two things? Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> Didn't we just have oh, a podcast wait, wait, about that? See, see the first half of the show. <laughs> yeah. So you know, the the beginning of his career um, was sort of grounded in a lot of hardcore logic and math and very technical uh, thinking. And it, you know, in the philosophical world, he's known for a lot of that work. But he was also, I think, as Paco kind of touched on earlier an anti-war activist, a uh, nuclear disarmament activist. Um, he went to jail uh, for... He went to prison. Jail, jail's where you go oh when you God. get arrested for something to decide yeah. if you actually did something. Uh-huh. Prison's where you go when they decided you'd done something wrong. He went to prison for six months. Yeah, you're right. He was on remand. Can I also point out that in, in England, where, where he grew up, uh, the word jail is spelled G-A-O-L? Uh, yeah, you can point that out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so yes, he was in <laughs> so it's <laughs> so he went to prison for for 6 months in in 1918. He was kind of bummed out that he wasn't sent to prison earlier in 1916 when he was involved in a protest where he was fined 100 pounds and he was hoping that he would be sent to prison for not paying the fine. But instead, his books were auctioned to raise the hundred pounds uh, to pay the fine. And it said that he later uh, treasured uh, the copy of the King James Bible uh, that he owned that was stamped confiscated by Cambridge police. Yeah. So, I mean, he was arrested and imprisoned for protesting against Britain's involvement in the First World War. And Britain's um, decision to um, invite the United States to enter the war. And he went on to also be um, an anti-war activist uh, during the Vietnam War. So he's very well known for his activism against the Vietnam War. He initially opposed British involvement in World War II um, because he, he was also a staunch pacifist. But I think in 1940, changed his view and said that that Hitler's a pretty bad guy, basically, that Hitler's a pretty bad guy and that his conquering of Europe would be sort of like a permanent threat to European uh, and British democracy. And I think he developed a stance called relative political pacifism, which said that war was always a great evil, um, but that in some extreme circumstances, it might be the lesser of two evils. He also won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1950 for his writing on um, anti-war topics and pacifism. And so to me, that's very fascinating that a guy who went from doing his early work in logic and math and set theory then went on in, in his later life to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, which, you know, kind of seem like very diametrically opposed things. Um, so again, yeah, he was kind of I think you said this earlier, Paco, he was a, a real renaissance man or a polymath. 
he has this interesting path in his life where he starts out being really interested in math and logic. You know, his older brother gets him into math in his teens, I think, and falls in love with logic and math. And that, like I said earlier, kind of colors his whole approach to every topic that he tackles in his in his life from philosophy to civics to you know war and nuclear disarmament in some ways he makes this transition from an academic philosopher to a person of public dialogue and the world of academic philosophy in some ways kind of like turns its back on him as he turns his back on it and he decides that there are more important things in the world than academic philosophy, that there are, in some sense, real-world things going on out there. Yeah. Like, the real world is in danger, and there are more important things than debating philosophical concepts in libraries, in institutions. There are more important things like stopping the world from going to all-out nuclear war and eliminating all mankind through total global nuclear warfare. And it, it's just, it's interesting that he kind of, throughout his whole career, kind of goes in and out of different phases and picks up one belief and abandons it and picks up another belief. And he's he's definitely kind of a person of change through his whole career. Yeah. And in a lot, in a lot of ways, he's more well known to more people for his involvement in it the anti-war movements in some ways than he is for his philosophical contributions. Like, at a, Yeah, I mean, uh, more people yeah. paid attention to World War One and World War Two and the Cold War than <laughs> paid attention to, to like hardcore yeah. academic philosophy. So, yeah. you know, somebody, somebody of his stature who switches from one kind of career to another, like, yeah, he's, he's going to be more well-known for those kinds of things than he is for like his technical writing on what names mean. He kind of reminds me of a uh, a a classical version of Jane Fonda, who uh, was originally known as an actress, and then was known by generation for her active um, uh, political activism against the the Vietnam War, and then a whole other generation knew her for fitness. <laughs> yeah. Are you comparing Bertrand Russell to Jane Fonda? Is that, is that what's happening right definitely. now? <laughs> That's definitely what's happening right now, yeah. is yeah. that Mark is saying that Jane Fonda has contributed as much to humankind as Bertrand Russell. Yeah. Right, Mark? Yeah, and she managed to reinvent herself and, and be a, a polymath of her generation. <laughs> um, so... The last thing that I wanted to say about Bertrand Russell, I mean, there's like we could do an entire podcast series on this guy because he was into so many different topics and it, it was such a kind of genius in, in so many different areas. But one of the things that I came across that I thought was really interesting, and we'll probably pick this up in a later episode in discussing his ideas around set theory, was how he took the same kind of logical approach that he took to philosophy and applied that to mathematics. And like we've said a couple times, he was into math and logic way before he got into philosophy. But, you know, his brother, his older brother got him into mathematics, into geometry and ar arithmetic. And, you know, he always had kind of this fundamental question about like, why, how, how do we know these fundamental ideas about math that everyone takes for granted, right? So in geometry, everybody takes for granted that there's only one straight line between point A and point B, or that in arithmetic that 
one has a particular meaning or definition. And he wanted to even like rewind things and say, how do we know those things are even true? Like, how do we even know what the value of one is? Which is crazy. It's kind of like the, the same thing that we were talking about earlier, where, you know, when he was in prison during World War One for his anti-war points of view, he wrote two chapters of a book on the meaning of the. When he tackled math, he was like, let's go back to the problem of one plus one equals two. Like, how do we know that's true? Yeah. Like, how many mathematicians start out their career by saying, I don't even believe that. Like, it seems intuitive, but let's rewind it in and make sense of one plus one equals two. So he tried to apply logic to even those kinds of simple things. And the way he did it was like mind blowing. When I first came across this idea that he was going to try to define the idea of one with logic, that the idea of one wasn't even axiomatic enough that it needed to have some kind of definition applied to it. I was like, how do you even do that? But he came up with this idea that you would say, okay, imagine a thing, anything. You can call it A, you can call it whatever. But you can't imagine anything that exists not being equal or identical to itself, right? So anything right. that exists has to at least be identical to itself. So in that concept, you can kind of come up with the idea of one. Because if there's a thing, what is the minimum number of things that it can be equal to? One. It's the concept of one, right? And then if you want to come up with the concept of zero, you can imagine a class of things. So this is where like his idea of class theory comes in, but it's kind of like a group. So imagine there's there's nothing that can't be at least identical to itself. So imagine a class of things that aren't or a set, right? I think you equal to themselves, right. right? This is the null set, right? Yeah. Everything's e at least equal to itself. So imagine a group of things that aren't equal to itself. How many things are in that group? That's where you come up with the concept of zero. Right. right. So like this is a dude that is trying to apply logic to the ideas of one and zero, like the most fundamental concepts of mathematics. And like, it's just amazing. I can't even imagine operating on that kind of level. Like those things make sense when you say them now, but imagine that concept not existing and coming up with it yourself. Like he... Bertrand Russell obviously exists on the top turnbuckle of any philosophical wrestling <laughs> match we're going to come up with. Yeah, and I think it's like it's important to note that like the you know, you can't really draw a bright line between his work in in mathematics and set theory and logic on the one hand and his work in philosophy on the other hand. And that's kind of in some ways why he's considered one of the fathers of analytic philosophy is because, you know, we'll, we'll do another show where we talk about sort of what analytic philosophy is and how it contrasts to other schools of thought. But, you know, one of the, one of the important things that Bertrand Russell brings to the history of ideas is the notion that, logic um should be the central language of philosophy and it's this very kind of structured um formal approach to constructing philosophical arguments that's sort of born out of his work in logic and then comes to define anglo-american philosophy in the 20th century so 
you know, in the same way that his work in mathematics is kind of an outgrowth of these fundamental principles in logic, like a lot of his, you know, what we would think of as more kind of philosophical um, work around things like names um, and language also, you know, has its grounding in in his work in logic. Yeah, maybe I can just read one quick quote from him on why he believes analytical philosophy is like the most important way to or, or, or approach to philosophy. But he says it differs from previous philosophical methods by its incorporation of mathematics and its development of a powerful logical technique. It is thus able in regard to certain problems to achieve definite answers. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like which the system builders, as he calls them of, of previous ages, like can't do. They're trying to develop these one stroke block theories of the whole universe. Right. Yeah. And they don't have a underlying systematic methodology to approach these topics. It's like going back to one of those early points we made around the 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 situation that Wittgenstein noticed that the only reason we have philosophy is because we have an imperfect language and the idea of a a, a pure abstract logical hyper real language is a solution to that. Do you guys want to hear some names of animals named after famous people? <laughs> <laughs> Do we have a choice? <laughs> well, the, the, here's one. Uh, um, the the famous quote um, discussing how um, if you were to try to deconstruct any philosophical argument, you'll realize that there's no basis because you could go on forever. The phrase, there's turtles all the way down, yeah. was actually attributed to uh, Bertrand Russell, which is uh, very, very pithy of him. I thought it came from, I thought it was a, a question that, that someone asked him during a lecture. Yeah, it was actually yeah. So it wasn't him. It was a it was a it was a lady uh, in the audience that um, when when the topic came up of you know how the universe works and the fundamental theories behind it, and she said, well, of course, you realize that you know uh, our world is just sitting on the back of a giant turtle, um, and uh, Bertrand Russell said, well, what's the uh, what's the turtle standing on? And she said, well, it's it's another turtle. And he said, like, and then, and she said, well, it's turtles all the way down. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to argue against. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the other famous author who uh, talked about how we all, uh, or uh, the 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 people in his in his novels, all lived on the back of a giant turtle was that of Terry Pratchett. And uh, a few years ago, there was a new species of of turtle uh, called Perseverus Terry Pratchetty, which uh, was <laughs> was named in honor of the uh, Discworld. That's lazy. Yeah, you know, I really want to discover an animal just because I just so that I can give it a name. Like, I don't really even care about whether there are new animals or not. Um, I just want to find one so that I can name it. Because I, this is, like, really crazy tradition, right? Which is, like, if you discover a thing, you name it whatever you want. Yeah. Well, that was actually the case with uh, Fernando Burrero, a jellyfish expert in uh, in Genoa, who was a huge fan of Frank Zappa, who uh, <laughs> uh, spent his entire career looking for a jellyfish that he could name after Frank Zappa, Yes. Uh, just so he could get a meeting with Frank Zappa. Amazing. I love this guy. I feel like you guys are corroborating on this back section of the <laughs> no, show. No, we're not at all. I, I, I mean, I think that's... 
<laughs> we're not, but that's amazing. That guy has absolutely the right strategy. Wait, so what happened? Did he get a meeting with Frank Zappa? Uh, yes, he did. Uh, uh, Frank Zappa uh, said, uh, there's nothing I would like better than having a jellyfish named after me. And There's nothing I'd like better? That was his response? <laughs> there's nothing I can imagine more in the world that I'd like better than to have a jellyfish named after me? And as oh a result, Frank Zappa and... Frank Zappa, if you're listening... Hey, I, hey, hey. He's, he's actually passed away right now. But Frank Zappa, if you're listening, please give us a rating and review on iTunes and retweet the show. <laughs> After that, I can't guarantee that I'm not going to hunt you down and punch you in the face. So, so the happy ending was that Fernando Brero and Frank Zappa, during Frank Zappa's later years, became close friends over this jellyfish. Much as... That's the happy ending? What about Frank Zappa's, like, insane megalomania? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, th- well, he didn't have that about cuddly jellyfishes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> My position still stands. Frank Zappa, rate this show. Give us five stars. What, from beyond it. the grave or what? Like, what, what are yes. you asking for? <laughs> yes. And then I will hunt you down <laughs> and punch you in your partially decomposed face. Maybe bald. I don't know. Are you the king of France? Potentially. I think there's been a lot of um, a, a lot of uh, out of sync chronology in this episode because I also earlier contended that uh, John Stuart Mill and Gottlob Frege didn't live at the same time and thus could not have um, entered into a hypothetical wrestling match. But that's actually they definitely totally false. They, yeah, I think they definitely not, only, not only was I wrong about them not living it. it at the same time, but I think that they, I was probably also wrong about the fact that they never wrestled. I'm pretty sure Frank Zappa, Frege, <laughs> John Stuart Mill, and Bertrand Russell tag teamed in the greatest two on two wrestling match ever in the history of Cambridge. Uh, wait, sorry, did you say who is on whose team? Um, I, I don't remember. I mean, I didn't get, it didn't get filmed. I mean, that was the, that was the reason that Russell got expelled from Cambridge. Not any of his, uh, anti, anti-war, anti-Britain. I, I guess it would have had, like, Frege and Russell would not have been on the same team, right? Because although hmm. Russell sort of, like, promoted Frege's work, he also, um, introduced a paradox, which destroyed Frege's entire I mean I think they would have been early on I mean this is this is this is where the drama comes into it they would have uh, okay, been early right, right. on and then like the final match would have been the breakup of Frege and Russell where Russell's like here's this conundrum that's going to destroy all of your life's work right and Frege's like here's this chair that I'm going to break over your back <laughs> And then he and then he like tags in Frank Zappa. Yeah, yeah. Like Bertrand Russell's falling down and like his fingertips touch Frank Zappa's fingertips. Frank right. Zappa comes in from the top rope with a guitar over, I don't even know over what the we're head. Talking about anymore. Over the head of Frege. <laughs> okay. All right, I'm pretty sure this is all any of our listeners can tolerate. Oh, my so. God. We're, we've passed that point a while ago. <laughs> and this is the point where I record some new ending to the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you have a minute, we'd love it if you left us a review in iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast platform you use. 
If you want to be part of the show, you can find us online at you've got it all wrong.net. Send us your questions and feedback to questions at you've got it all wrong.net. Search for You've Got It All Wrong on Facebook and like our page. And you can follow us on Twitter. The show is at All Wrong Podcast. I'm at Paco Allen. I'm at Chad Allen. And I'm at M. Sanders. Corner got love, Frege. <laughs> weighing in at 135 pounds. Um, and in this corner, John Stewart. Me. <laughs> Also weighing in at 135 pounds. <laughs> also living at exactly the same time. <laughs> um, okay. Hopefully, you should try to cut that in somewhere. It's pretty good.